President Bush, in early of 2008, took his chief of staff, Josh Bolton, aside and said, look, the new team is going to have its hands full. There was going to be a lot on the plate for the new president and the new president's team. And President Bush said to Josh, I want this to be the best transition ever. We've got to recognize we're in a more competitive environment with China, and we got to be willing to compete in that environment and win where it matters to us. So what I say to folks is, yes, there are a lot of challenges out there, but the United States has enormous resources with its friends and allies to meeting them. And if we make the right decisions, we can handle them. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Stephen Hadley. Steve is a principal at Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Monwell LLC, an international strategic consulting firm founded with Condoleezza Rice, Robert Gates, and Anya Monwell. He served for four years as assistant to the president for national security affairs from 2005 to 2009. In that capacity, he was the principal White House foreign policy advisor to then President George W. Bush, directed the National Security Council staff, and ran the interagency national security policy development and execution process. From 2001 to 2005, Steve Hadley was the assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor, serving under then national security advisor Condoleezza Rice. From 1989 to 1993, Steve served as the assistant secretary of defense for international security policy under then secretary of defense Dick Cheney. Steve is the editor and a significant contributor to an important new book on the Bush administration's foreign policy called Handoff the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. Steve, welcome to the podcast. One of the highlights from my time in Washington was the opportunity to work with you. I've always appreciated the way you think about America and its role in the world and the way you work with your colleagues. And I've greatly appreciated the opportunity to share ideas with you on U.S., China, and other issues. Steve, I'm really looking forward to discussing your new book, but let's start at the beginning. You were born and raised in Ohio. Tell us a bit about your upbringing. Did it sow the seeds of your interest in public policy or did that come later? The interest in public policy really came later. I grew up in Ohio. I never left the country until after I had completed law school some 24 years later. So I was not an internationalist by exposure or inclination, but I went to Cornell University and I took a course with Walter Lefebvre, who was a diplomatic historian there and who had one of the most popular courses on the campus. And it was a diplomatic history of the United States. And in me and so many others, it provoked an interest in serving the country and working in the foreign policy field. You know, Sandy Berger, who was national security advisor under Bill Clinton, was a student of Walt Lefebvre's. Uh, Dan Freed, Eric Edelman, Paul Wolfowitz, generation of generations of Cornell students took Walt's course and decided that they wanted to work in the foreign policy 
field on behalf of their country. It's a wonderful legacy to him. He died a couple of years ago, a, a real towering academic figure and an inspiration for all of us. Boy, I'll tell you, it's really amazing the difference a good professor or teacher can make. You know, I can think of a number in my career. Steve, I was even a later bloomer than you. I didn't develop my interest in foreign policy, really, until I traveled overseas with Goldman Sachs. Now, the thing you did also, very early on, the early part of your career, you were an officer in the U.S. Navy. Talk a bit about the Navy experience and what it taught you. So I was in the Navy NROTC program while I was in Yale Law School. Being on an Ivy League campus in late 60s, early 70s was an interesting experience. I used to go across the campus in my drill uniform, which was working blues with white spats and a white cover. And I would get what I would call one finger salutes from some of the undergraduates on the campus. I came out of law school and I had a three-year obligation with the Navy. And I came down to Washington, served in the Pentagon in a group you know well, analysis group for the comptroller of the Department of Defense, two business people, two lawyers who were sort of a in-house little think tank for the comptroller. And that's where I spent uh, the first year and a half before transferring and going to work at the National Security Council staff for the last month of the Nixon administration the rest of the Ford administration, and the first three or four weeks of the Jimmy Carter administration. So, Steve, that analysis group in the Pentagon was really a formative experience for me because business school is two years and law school is a year. I got there a little bit ahead of you. But to me, working with a, a group of young people and getting to think about policy issues for the first time and analysis and so on, it really made a big difference in my career. So then when you were in the Ford administration, you know, and the, and the National Security Council staff back then as a young man, did you ever envision, did you, did you aspire to come back as a head of the National Security Council and the top advisor to a president someday? What sort of ambitions did you have right then? Were you able to look ahead and imagine something like that, what developed for you? Not at all. In fact, it went the other way. When I was in Walter Lefebvre's diplomatic history course and learned a little bit about the National Security Council structure, I thought, gee, you know, my life ambition is just to be on the NSC staff, the National Security Council staff. So a year and a half into my tenure at the Pentagon, when an opportunity arose for me to go and be detailed over to the National Security staff and serve there for two and a half years, as first as a military and then continuing on as a civilian, at the ripe old age of 30 or 31, I had already achieved my life ambition. So the question is, what am I going to do now? So I decided to go practice law. Amazing how careers develop. And I'm always a little bit suspicious of career engineers, people that plan it out the whole way. They just you work on one thing at a time and do a good job and the future takes care of itself. You know, if I could mention one thing about that, Hank, that is an important thing for, for some of the young people who might be listening to this podcast. You and I are both very close friends to a man named Clark McFadden, who was also in the analysis group for the Comptroller when I was there. And Clark and I have become lifelong friends. Um, the thing that really propelled my career forward was serving on the Tower Commission in 19, 
86 and 87, which was constituted by Ronald Reagan to look into the issue of arms sales to Iran. And that's where I got to know John Tower, got to know Brent Scowcroft even better. But the reason I got that job was because I was recommended by Clark McFadden, a friend and colleague. And I say to young people, as you pursue your careers, make sure you get to know your peers, because if you're lucky, they will be friendships that you will have an opportunity to work with for the next 30 years. And every job I ever got, I got because a friend and a peer recommended me. Take time to get to know the people who are your colleagues and peers. It's interesting because when I showed up at the analysis group in the Pentagon, you know, I'd never worn a suit to work before. I knew very little about business. I'd gone to business school as a very young man. And so I showed up and my colleagues there were all older and more experienced and they helped me and mentored me. Right. So John Spratt was there. He became chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. There were uh, three people there that went on to become CEOs and they took me under their wing. And one of my peers there actually went to the White House and had a job where he was working to negotiate a deal with Turkey to stop the production of, of heroin and so on. And anyway, he he was the one that made the introduction and I ended up going to the White House for a short time. And it was there that I got to work with George Schultz when he was Treasury Secretary. And I don't think I ever would have accepted uh, George Bush's offer to become Treasury Secretary if it hadn't been for that. So it's, again, what you say really resonates with me. Now, Steve, I'd like to step back and have you tell our listeners about the role of the National Security Council. They didn't have the benefit of Walter Lefevre's class. So how does it fit into the larger national security apparatus of the U.S. government and specifically your approach as a leader of the National Security Council and George W. Bush's National Security Advisor? What are the Steve Hadley's principle for leadership? So, Hank, let's do that in two bites. The National Security Council. The National Security Council was established in the 1947 National Security Act. Its membership is really the president by statute is the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, secretary of defense, advised by the head of intelligence and advised by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's what's in statute. In fact, the president is authorized and every president has invited additional cabinet members to sit in on those meetings where they have an interest in the issue. This is not a decision-making body. It is strictly advisory to the president to help the president to make decisions. Now, underneath that National Security Council, there are layers of what we call interagency organizations. There is a principles committee that pulls together cabinet secretaries and meets without the president. There's a level below that of an interagency group that meets at the deputy secretary and undersecretary level. And there are committees even below that that meet at the assistant secretary level, bringing together all the departments and agencies of government relevant to the issue that is being discussed. And issues have a way of percolating up through that structure to the NSC for final decision by the president. And the role of the national security advisor is to really do three things. One, 
National Security Advisor has the National Security Council staff, anywhere from 100 to 200 folks, that are basically to support the president in his or her exercise of national security and foreign policy, prep them for meetings, help on the speeches, arrange travel, uh, all of those things that the, the president needs. That's So the National Security Advisor runs that staff. Secondly, the National Security Advisor runs that interagency process, that layers of interagency committees that we talked about, along with the NSC staff. And third, the National Security Advisor provides his or her own advice to the president on the issues of the day. And lastly, the National Security Advisor talks publicly, but when the National Security Advisor talks publicly, they should be talking about not what they believe, but what the president believes. They spend probably more time with the president than any other National Security Council official. They are most likely to know the president's mind and to be able to talk authoritatively by that. Because remember, the National Security Advisor is not Senate confirmed. It's not appropriated funds or staff to run the national security of the United States. It's a terrific job, but it's a staff job to support the president of the United States. But every major issue, every major international issue goes through the National Security Advisor. Many of them aren't easy ones. You know, the easy ones don't get there, right? That is an intensive, time-consuming job. Now, talk about your philosophy to management there. What were your principles as you worked with people? So the model I used was the model of Brent Scowcroft, who was the only person to be National Security Advisor twice, once for Gerald Ford and then again for George H.W. Bush. And Brent, as I mentioned, was on the Tower Commission. And Brent and I, in the Tower Commission report issued in February of 1987, wrote a description of the role of the National Security Advisor. And to this day, I think, and I'm biased, of course, it's the best description of what that job is and how to do it. When the president asked me to be National Security Advisor, he said, I want you to be an honest broker and run an open process. And what he meant by that was he wanted me to bring together the cabinet level national security principles, run a transparent process by which we would gather their views and transmit them to the president and let each of them have an opportunity to express their views and advice to the president and to do it in a transparent way. That's what I tried to do, to run an open, transparent, even-handed process. And it's a little tricky because you're both the process manager for the president, but also the advisor to the president. And you can, in your private advice, if you want, put your finger on the scales and in some sense bias what comes out of that interagency process. That's a no-no in my view. And what I used to do is even though I would give my advice in confidence and privately to the president, I would let my national security principal colleagues know where I was heading and the kinds of advice and opinions I was probably passing to the president. So they would have an opportunity to weigh in with the president and say, Mr. President, I think Steve has this view, but let me tell you why I think that's wrong. This was part of trying to have an open, transparent process and to keep the confidence and the trust 
of your NSC colleagues as you go about supporting the president in the decisions the president needs to make. And I can assure you, you were very successful with that. All your colleagues trusted and admired your ability and willingness to maintain a transparent process and to let them express their views. This brings us to your new book. It's called Handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. And it includes newly declassified memos and analysis of the Bush administration's foreign policy. First, tell us about what motivated the project. President Bush in uh, early of 2008 took his chief of staff, Josh Bolton, aside and said, look, the new team, whoever it is, and at that point, we didn't know who the president-elect was going to be. The new team is going to have its hands full. We've got the ongoing terrorism threat to the country that we were working on 24-7. We've got ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've got ongoing negotiations with Iran and North Korea. And little did we know, as you know too well, we were about to sail into the worst financial and economic crisis we'd had since the Great Depression. So there was going to be a lot on the plate for the new president and the new president's team. And the president said, to, President Bush said to Josh, I want this to be the best transition ever. So Josh brought the White House staff together and tasked me to run the national security foreign policy piece of the White House transition process. And we did a number of things to do that. And one of the things we did was to prepare a set of 40 memos on each of the key issues of the day, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, terrorism, proliferation, you name it. And they all had the same format. What we found when we came into office in 2001, what was our strategy in handling the issue? What did we do? What did we accomplish? And what was left to be done? And what were the challenges that we're going to face the new administration when it came in in January in 2009? And those, each of those memos had a voluminous set of attachments to them with policy statements, speeches, memos of recording conversations the president had with world leaders, with NSC meetings and the like. All of that material was for a good transition from President Bush to President Obama. About three, four years ago, I was thinking about those memos and it turned, and it seemed to me in retrospect, my recollection was they were pretty good. So I went down to Dallas, got them out of the presidential archive. I still had my my security clearances so I could read them. And I read them and they were as good as I remembered. And so it occurred to me that if we could get them declassified and put them together in a volume for the public, it would be a good record of the challenges the Bush administration faced and what it did about them. And the book publishes 30 of these transition memos. And each one, for each one, the person who wrote the memo or otherwise worked on the issue for President Bush wrote a postscript. What happened subsequently under Presidents Obama, Trump, and early Biden? And what that means, what that subsequent issue tells us about two things. One, how did Bush do? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? And there's a fair amount of criticism in those postscripts. And two, based on four administrations over 20 years dealing with the issue, 
What are the lessons learned for future presidents? Because virtually all those issues that are covered in that book are still with us today. That's what the book was all about. And we I hope it is the place that that plus an online archive at SMU University that includes the transition memos and all those attachments, I hope is the first stop of anyone who wants to write and research and comment on Bush administration foreign policy. It was very interesting, Steve. That's very similar to what Bernanke, Geithner, and I did on the financial crisis. We looked back at the 10-year anniversary, got all of the people who had worked on this in both administrations, both Bush and Obama administrations, looked at what the problem we faced was, what our strategy was, uh, how well it worked, what didn't work, and put together a similar book. Fascinating. Now, here's an interesting question for you. Now that you've had the opportunity to look back at the Bush administration with 13 years of hindsight, you know, some of the questions, 20 years, right? What has that experience been like? What were the major things that the president and his team got right? And what were the things you wished you had done differently? So I'll put aside uh, China and Russia, because I know we'll, we'll dive into both of those. So let me talk about things I think that we did pretty well on. For all the controversy, the institutional changes President Bush put in to our organizations, their missions, their procedures to keep the country safe from terrorism, I think was a remarkable achievement. You remember that after 9-11, the intelligence community said 9-11 was going to be the first of a wave of mass casualty attacks by al-Qaeda, some of which would involve weapons of mass destruction. None of that happened. That's an enormous accomplishment. Steve, I remember sitting in early on when I first got to Washington and sitting in on some of those National Security Council meetings and the president's briefings and so on. It was scary to realize what was going on that the public didn't know about, right? And, and the disasters that were being prevented. And some of them, you know, were pretty scary stuff. People forget the environment. There was, of course, the 9-11 itself. The fact that less than a month later, there was an anthrax attack, series of envelopes with white powder showing up in congressional offices and media offices, killing Americans. From the end of 9-11 to the end of 2002, there were 38 major terrorist attacks globally in 12 countries. That's sort of every other week, if you were sitting in the White House, there was a, an attack that killed a dozens of citizens, many times young people, somewhere in the world. The world was under siege with terrorism. And I think the Bush administration gets credit for getting the country through that. And the American people get credit for, uh, for standing together at that time. We had a similar effort to deal with the proliferation of nuclear weapons. We had considerable success. There was no new nuclear weapon state, no terrorist group got access to a nuclear weapon. Yes, we have the nuclear programs of Iran and North Korea that we're still struggling with four or five administrations later. But that was, I think, an accomplishment. Bringing India into a strategic relationship with the United States, very important, particularly as China has become more aggressive and hegemonistic. 
The things President Bush did in Africa, a new approach to development, putting billions of dollars to treat HIV, AIDS, and malaria and other diseases in Africa, saved between the two of them probably more than 35 million lives. That's a that's a great story the American people should be very proud of, and most Americans know nothing about it. And I would say standing up for the promotion of freedom and democracy, human rights, and rule of law. I know that came went out of fashion after the Bush administration, but I think the Ukrainians are showing every day the importance of those values and the importance of being willing to fight for those values at the cornerstone of a stable international system. So those are the things we got right. The things we got wrong, we wanted to bring China and Russia into the international system and into a partnership with the West that did not work the way we had hoped. We had agreements with North Korea and Iran by which they were willing to give up their nuclear programs. Both the countries got out of those agreements. There's a reason for that we can talk about. And obviously, Afghanistan and Iraq did not turn out the way we had hoped. Again, reasons for that. It's a net-net. I think in some respects, we were our reach exceeded our grasp. And some of the things we started, like the projects in Iraq and Afghanistan, we couldn't be expected to finish in the space of eight years. They had to be passed on to subsequent administrations in the same way subsequent administrations had to build on the effort we made to rebuild Europe after the World War II and to bring democracy to South Korea uh, in the decades subsequent to the Korean War. That's a lot. When you look back and look at the issues that the president dealt with in eight years, pretty amazing. Let's talk about China, because you and I have shared a lot of ideas on China. And of course, I ran the strategic economic dialogue for the president during his last two and a half years in office. And I certainly didn't anticipate that Xi Jinping would take China in the direction he has. Do you think this was knowable or preordained? And looking at China, what did we get right and what did we get wrong on China policy based upon what we knew at the time? One of the things about the book, if you read the transition memo on China, is how different the China you faced, George W. Bush faced, and had to deal with from the China of today. The China in the Bush period, as you know well, really was looking for a benign international environment so we could focus on economic development. Rather than trying to overturn the international system, they wanted to be part of the international system. And they basically sought a cooperative relationship with the United States. And uh, we got a lot done in cooperation with China on terrorism, proliferation, uh, a global financial crisis, a whole, whole raft of issues. Uh, people will say, well, we were blind. There were seeds of, a, of the future China at the time. Yes, the Communist Party was in power. Um, yes, there were state-owned enterprises that had a role in the economy. But I think the direction of things were in a positive direction. They were reforming and opening the economy. They were cooperating with the, us and with the international system. And the Communist Party's role was somewhat declining in favor of more governmental institutions. All that changed. Why did it change? I think it changed. It, it shows that who, who leads countries matters. 
Xi Jinping had a very different agenda when he took power in 2012, and it's played out on the subsequent decade. And it's based on the notion that the West is in decline, America is in terminal decline. Now, the, the correlation of forces and the forces of history favor China. Now is the time for China to assert itself on the international stage, take a central role, and to be much more aggressive in its foreign policy, both in its region and internationally. I think what changed was Xi Jinping. And over 10 years, he's taken his country in a very different direction. I think you're right. We certainly didn't think that uh, China was going to become a Jeffersonian democracy or, you know, or be espousing Western values. But we certainly saw them as a, a country that was opening up. And I think of some of the things we got done. I mean, the world would have been a very different place after the financial crisis if China hadn't cooperated to the extent they did. In the midst of the panic, being able to get them immediately and have them agree to hold, you know, government securities, corporate securities, Fannie and Freddie securities, their stimulus program after the financial crisis, helping drive their recovery. The changes they made on their currency, moving to one that was more representative of fundamental economics and market values. And the leaders we worked with were different, right? They clearly had a different set of priorities. And Zhang Zemin, we looked at the party, knew that the Communist Party was it was tremendously important to him. But he looked at it and said, I want to bring the business, I want to bring the elite into, into the party. And Xi Jinping said, enough of that. I'm going to govern through the party, not through the state. I'm going to put the party into everything else, right? So that was a shock to many in China. Talk about how you assess the China challenge today. And how well do you think the Biden administration has responded to this challenge? I'll do that, Hank. Before that, I think we owe your listeners an answer to a question that I expect is on their mind. And I'll give an answer and then you should weigh in as well. But some people are saying, were we naive in our approach to China? Uh, and I think the answer to that is actually no. As you said, our policy was not dependent on China becoming a Jeffersonian democracy. We Nobody thought that was in the cars. But what we did think was we could bring China into the international system. They would be supportive of that system. They could have a cooperative, constructive relationship with the United States, and it was worth a try to do so. I think if we had not done that and had assumed a more hostile position towards China, people would critiquing the Bush administration the way uh, Vladimir Putin defends his decision to go in Ukraine. They would have said, well, Bush, by his hostility, forced China into its more aggressive position. So I think it was a reasonable proposition, given the leadership with whom we were working, to try to bring them into the international system as we did. But remember, we hedged. At the same time we were doing that, we were strengthening our relations with our allies in the region, with Japan, South Korea, and Australia, to incentivize China to move in a positive direction, but also to give us a hedge and a platform in the event it did not work and China took a more aggressive stance. And that's what has happened. And the Biden administration is in a position to use that platform, that web of alliances 
and relationships as a tool for managing what is now a very aggressive China. You know, I, I agree with Steve, everything you said. And I think people that want to look back and rewrite history need to make the assumption that, first of all, that if the U.S. had a different policy, we could have contained China, right? And there would have been a less hostile and less successful China. You know, I would argue that a lot of what was done, the Bush administration is done with China, benefited not just China, but the U.S. and the world. The 10-year framework on the economy, on energy and the environment, which we worked out as part of the strategic economic dialogue, turned out to be the foundation for uh, Obama's uh, Paris Agreement with China on climate change. And it was a foundation as he enhanced that and built that out. The trade relationship with China was one that benefited both parties. Now, this has gone in an adverse direction. And we always knew that China understood strength and you need to be strong diplomatically, economically, and uh, militarily. You know, we'll leave history to the historians, but we dealt with the China we saw and I think dealt with it in a very practical way. And it's a different China today. One of the things you said I'd like to pick up on, you and I both grew up in the 60s and the Vietnam era. And we have, I think, in the country, what I call the Vietnam conceit, that if only the United States had the right policies, all would be right with the world. Well, that isn't how it works. We don't have that kind of power uh, to, to bring that about. So what you can do is have a policy that seems sensible and to hedge. And we hedge by strengthening our own military, economic, and diplomatic presence in the region, strengthening our existing alliances, and doing things like bringing India into a strategic relationship with the United States so they could be with us to manage China. I think that was the right policy, and I think uh, history will be kind to President Bush and his approach to China. Now let's talk a little bit more about the Biden administration and how they've responded to this challenge. Because looking at it through one set of lenses, it looks like each country is now talking to their domestic audience, right? I always believed in Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick. And the Chinese, you didn't get anywhere by just lecturing them publicly. You had the discussions privately and showed strength. And so I don't think some of the rhetoric on each side has been helpful. Maybe that's just a result of the underlying big differences. But talk a bit about what you think the Biden administration is getting right and what isn't going as well. So I think we have the Trump administration to thank, and I mean that sincerely, for waking the country up to the challenge presented by China. And I think they did the country a service. It was a strategic surprise to a lot of Americans. We initially reacted with kind of strategic panic. Oh, my gosh. China's 10 feet tall. We're, you know, we're in a world of hurt. We need to push back on China everywhere. It's been up to the Biden administration to begin to fashion a bipartisan policy towards China. And I think the contours of that are pretty sound. First, it is to invest here at home, to fix our politics, invest in our infrastructure, fix our own economy. So we have a strong platform at home with which to confront our challenges abroad. Secondly, to align our China policy with our friends and allies, 
alone, we probably don't have the weight to deal with China, but with our friends and allies together, the combined economic, diplomatic, and military weight of those countries is, is, an, is what we need and enough to help us deal with the China problem. And third, we've got to recognize we're in a more competitive environment with China, and we got to be willing to compete in that environment and win where it matters to us. So I think the framework for the policy is pretty good. Xi Jinping has done something which is almost impossible these days. He has forged almost a unanimous consensus among Republicans and Democrats in Congress that we need to have a much tougher approach on China. That's on balance a good thing. We're in the process now of implementing that new policy framework. There's a lot more to be done on that uh, in terms of fixing our platform here at home. And I think one of the tests for the Biden administration will be whether they're adequately resourcing their strategy and implementing it in an effective way. I think the other thing we have to recognize is while we need to compete with China, we don't that want that competition to lead to confrontation or military conflict. That's a lose-lose for everybody. And that, I think, is the challenge for the Biden administration. While having a much more competitive approach by China, they would also like to stabilize the relationship, kind of put a floor under the relationship if they can, or some guardrails on the competition so it doesn't become confrontation and conflict. That is very hard to do in the current political environment, both here in the United States and China. It is so polarized that almost any step towards moderating or putting a floor under the relationship is open to criticism. And secondly, as much as the two leaders, Xi and Biden, who met together in Bali, want to try to enter some stability in the relationship, there are a lot of forces at work pulling that relationship apart. And you saw that with the recent confrontation over the balloon incident. Yes, China shouldn't put be sailing balloons into sovereign American airspace. Yes, when they do, we ought to shoot them down. But it really did not reflect a profound threat to the national security of the United States. And yet it derailed the effort to begin to inject some stability into the relationship. And Blinken then canceled his trip to China and met with Wang Yi and Munich and had a very contentious meeting. So I think we have the right policy. I think we have to be tough. I think we have to implement that policy. I'm worried that we, we've also got to mitigate the competition a little bit. And that's going to be hard to do in the current political environment, both in the United States and in China. Yep, it's going to take a lot of political will for both President Biden and for Xi Jinping to stand against some of the domestic sentiment and do things which they believe are right for their respective countries and the world. And so that's the challenge. Now, there's this growing link between America's national security policy and its trade policy, particularly with regard to China. And we've seen restrictions recently on the flows of goods, capital, people, and technology. To what extent are these controls making us safer? And to what extent are they ceding leadership of the global economy to China? How do we get the right balance there, Steve? 
I think what we're doing in terms of these export control restrictions are sound and the right thing to do. I think that in some of the most significant and sensitive high-tech areas, which are important to the economic future of our country and our national security, artificial intelligence, cyber autonomy, bioengineering, these are important areas. And it is important that we have domestic capability here and are not dependent unduly on Chinese supply chains. So I think in these high-tech areas, especially some decoupling is important for the United States. And quite frankly, China is already decoupling from us. Their strategy in these areas is that they want to be self-sufficient themselves and have the rest of the world dependent on them. That's not an an approach that works for us. So I think some, we've got a ways to go to get this right, focused on those areas of technology that matter for our national security. But at the same time, in other areas like consumer goods, we ought to permit cross-investment and cross-trade between the two countries. So that's the China framework. The other framework is if we want to have countries in the region close to us, in the face of the enormous economic pull that is the Chinese economy, we've got to have a trade strategy with our friends and allies. And that is one of the big holes in the Biden administration's implementation of their strategy framework. We don't offer market opening, market access to friends, our allies in the region. The Bush administration started a discussion that resulted in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a framework for trade and investment for us and uh, our closest allies in the region. Strategically, it was a terrific move for countering China, but it fell afoul of domestic politics. And both candidates, Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016, walked away from TPP, and Trump pulled us out of TPP once he was president. I understand the domestic politics. Maybe we can't go back to TPP and the successor organization that the Japanese in our absence has put together. But we need an offering on trade and investment with our friends and allies in the region if we're going to effectively counter what China has on offer. You and I are in complete agreement on this. We have a policy in Washington right now, which is to close markets rather than to open them. It is very much a worker-centric, union-driven trade policy, which plays well politically in the U.S., but we're not leading on the international stage. And when China is uh, the biggest trader in the world and does more trade with 90 different countries than we do in the U.S., that's not a recipe to win over the long term. So that, that, that needs to be remedied. Let's now talk about Ukraine. You developed a strategy paper for the Atlantic Council this past November that outlined a long-haul strategy to help Ukraine win the war against Russia and secure the peace. How do you assess the current status of the war? What are the biggest challenges you see, and how can the U.S. help to address them? I'm worried about Ukraine. There's been a lot of celebration, rightly, of the great skill and courage of the Ukrainian people now one year into this war. Uh, and they deserve all the praise that they get. 
but we shouldn't be diverted from a clear view of the reality of the situation. And that is this. Putin thinks time is on his side. And he thinks it's on his side in two respects. One, he thinks he can throw these conscripts and mobilize troops, which are now numbering the three or 400,000, can throw them into the battle against the Ukrainian forces and overwhelm those forces before the tanks, armored personnel carriers, and other equipment that the United States and the West has promised to Ukraine can get to Ukraine, get their people trained on them, and get on the front line. There's a foot race, and Putin thinks he can win that foot race in the short run. In the long run, Putin believes he can hold his people behind his operation and war in Ukraine longer than either the Ukrainian people can hold out against the war or that the Ukrainians can hold the United States and Europeans in supporting Ukraine in the effort. So he thinks there are two clocks, a short run clock and a long run clock, and that he's got the time on both clocks. And I worry in some measure that he may be right. And that is why what a number of us have been saying is we need to give the Ukrainians everything they need to deal with this renewed Russian offensive now as fast as we can to give Ukraine the option this year to launch a counteroffensive that would turn back the Russian invasion and give Zelensky leverage and Putin an incentive to maybe bring this war to an end. The kind of thing I'm thinking about is if the Ukrainians could break through at Zaporizhzhia, for example, and threaten the land bridge that the Russians have constructed between Russia over Ukrainian territory to Crimea and threaten Russians hold on Korea, Crimea and Russian forces in Crimea, that might cause Putin to decide it's strategically, this is moving against him and it's time to bring about a peace. But we need to be accelerating what we do with the Ukrainians. We need to get some leverage to them this year because of the long-term, I'm fearful that Russian mass in terms of its people, in terms of its industrial base, and in terms of Putin's ability to mobilize society and propagandize his society in this war may win the day. No one knows how and when this war is going to end, and it's a huge challenge. Now let's talk about President Bush's Russia strategy. Did the administration misread Putin? To what extent were Putin's uh, present-day behaviors noble? Putin has been in office now effectively since 1999. And he's changed over time. He's learned over time. And he's become more steeped in his grievances and resentments. Uh, and the saga under the Bush administration was a Putin who seemed to want to be part of the international system, cooperate with us, and have a constructive relationship with us. You know, President Bush used to talk to Putin, and he would say, Vladimir, you have a historic opportunity to bring Russia permanently into the West 
if you read Russian history, and I'm no scholar, but for 400 years, Russia has been struggling with its relationship with the West. And we thought after the end of the Cold War, there was really an opportunity to bring Russia permanently into the West. And Putin told President Bush that's what he wanted to do. But he would say, but there are dark forces in Russia that must not be awakened. So you need to let me do it in my own way, in my own time. And I remember we had a discussion with Putin about how to establish a two-party system, for example. Well, those days are long gone. Why? Two reasons. One, as Putin stayed longer and longer in power, he became more authoritarian in his practices. And he is now using the Ukraine war to impose almost a totalitarian control on the Russian people, propagandize them, purging them, and bringing them behind his vision of a restored Russian empire within the space of the former Soviet Union. Not a restored Soviet empire, a restored Russian empire. So one, we lost him over time as he became more authoritarian uh, and began to see the West as an enemy. And secondly, the color revolutions, the revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan in 2003, four, five, and six scared him. Rather than seeing these as efforts to build democratic, prosperous states that would be good neighbors of Russia, he saw them as efforts inspired by the CIA to put states with governments hostile to Russia on his borders and maybe as a dress rehearsal for destabilizing Russia itself. And that's what resulted in his invasion of Georgia in 2008 and which started this process. And you may remember at the time of the invasion in Georgia, we said very consciously, if we don't make Putin pay a strategic price for going into Georgia, tomorrow it'll be Ukraine and the day after he'll go into the Baltic states. And of course, in 2008, he goes into Georgia. 2014, he goes into Ukraine. 2022, he goes into Ukraine again. And that's why the Baltic states and Poland are so nervous. Building on that, you know, the national security landscape has changed in, in some dramatic ways since the Bush administration. Great power competition, as we've discussed, is now at the top of the agenda. And counterterrorism has receded into the background because we're all focused on this great power competition. However, terrorism is still a real threat, one that you spent a great deal of time managing during your time as a national security advisor. What is the threat to America posed by foreign terrorist groups today? How, how do you see that, Steve? It's dramatically reduced, but it's still there. Through 20 years now of going after al-Qaeda, going after ISIS, which was the successor of al-Qaeda in Syria and Iraq, which took over 40% of Iraq in 2014, 2015, and has now been turned back. Al-Qaeda and ISIS don't really have the kind of capacity to mount attack on the U.S. homeland like they did on 9-11. That isn't to say the risk is zero, but I think it's fair to say the risk is dramatically reduced. But at the same time, the terrorism threat has metastasized, and there are Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or Islamic State, and other terrorist groups in a variety of countries in the Middle East 
North Africa and the like. And they are a problem for those countries. So our strategy has to be one while we continue to be vigilant to protect the homeland and our men and women, citizens and, and, and officials overseas. We need to be helping countries that are struggling with terrorism, both deal with the terrorist threat per se in terms of security cooperation and the like, but also help them to make their societies more resilient against the attractiveness of the terrorist ideology. That's a big job, different kind of job, and one that we need to be paying more attention to. Steve, let's close with your advice to our young listeners. What do you say to students who are coming to you for help and advice and navigating their lives and careers in today's rapidly changing world? So what I say to folks is, one, yes, there are a lot of challenges out there, but the United States has enormous resources with its friends and allies to meeting them. And if we make the right decisions, we can handle them. Our fate is in our own hands. Bush used to say inside of every challenge, there is an opportunity for advancing the peace and security of Americans in the world today. That's how you have to look at these challenges. And they will be a real opportunity for young people today to work on the challenges over the course of their career. And we should be optimistic that we can handle them. Secondly, prepare yourself. Travel abroad, live abroad, read history, learn economics, which is how the world maintains its prosperity. Third, I say to them, you're plenty smart. Smart gets you in the door. Character will determine how you do and how far you go because character counts. What do I mean by that? I mean, one, treat people with respect. Aretha Franklin had it right. It's all about R-E-S-P-E-C-T. If you're dealing with folks from other countries, it's about showing respect. It's about showing respect to those above you, those who are your peers and those below. Act with integrity. Don't promise more than you can deliver and always deliver what you promise. Three, accept responsibility. I say to young people, some point in your career, you're going to make a mistake. And your instinct is going to be what is the human instinct honed over 80,000 years? When you make a mistake, you want to run and hide and lie and deny. You've got to train yourself, almost role play, so that when that moment comes and you panic, you overcome those fears, you step forward and take responsibility for what has happened. And that is not only the right thing to do from a standpoint of character, but it's the right thing from your career. Because as you and I know, hey, having watched scandals in Washington over the last 50 years, it, you can usually recover from what you did. What you can't recover from is the cover-up. In the end of the day, it's the cover-up. It's the lie and deny that bring people down. So treat people with respect, act with integrity, and accept responsibility and hold yourself accountable. Steve, this has been terrific. Uh, you've given our listeners a lot to think about. Uh, thanks a lot. It was great to be with you, Hank. Thanks so much. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. 
To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.